0: In 1969, the city of Renton was still just a small town, home to about 20,000 people. Their crowning achievement was the single-story library that had just been completed. It was the first, and is still the only library, to be built over a river. The building literally hovers over the water, held up by 12 giant columns in the middle and the riverbanks on either side. With walls of windows opening up to the natural beauty of the river, it was a popular study spot for students of nearby Renton Technical College, like 19-year-old culinary student Carol Erickson. In December of 1969, Carol had gone to the library to work on an assignment, designing a menu for an elaborate dinner. By 7 o'clock, the winter darkness had set in, but Carol was used to it. It was her routine, to walk home from the library along a dirt road that parallels the Cedar River. It was less than a half mile back to her condo, but Carol never made it. Her body was found naked and violated on the banks of the Cedar River. Carol's case had been all but forgotten less than two years later in the summer of 1970, when the body of another young woman was found just a few miles away. And then in 1971, two little boys went missing. It would take three terrible crimes, the loss of four young lives, and confessions from two different suspects before all the pieces would finally fall into place.
1: He wasn't looking for a particular type of victim, he's, he's just looking for whoever comes along because he would just roam the woods until he came across somebody.
2: Oh, my God! He's the
1: boogeyman.
0: I'm Kim Shepard with Carolyn Osorio, and this is the
2: scene of the crime. Kim, this is so cool because we both got to sit down and talk with Cloyd, our pimp detective. Yeah, we're a little bit of, like, fangirls uh, now. We are. It's not a little bit. I think that we can say it's a full-blown, we are fangirls of Cloyd. But we both got to sit down with him, and um, he made this case is a part of his book. So his recent book that came out. So I'm really excited to share our interview with him and to talk about this little-known serial killer in Renton.
0: Yeah, and of course, this case started in, 1969. That was before Cloyd's time, but it's one that piqued his interest just recently.
1: Because I thought I knew all the local killers, right? Because I work for the Attorney General's office now at the Homicide Investigation Tracking System, and we have a database of every murder that happens.
0: What Cloyd would come to discover was the case of Renton's first serial killer, years before Ted Bundy started kidnapping co-eds and long before Gary Ridgeway would dump his first bodies in the Green River. On December 15, 1969, the murder of 19-year-old Carol Erickson was thought to be an isolated tragedy. A young woman, found with a hunting knife, plunged into her back.
1: She would apparently walk down what, at that time, was just a muddy, scotch-broom-covered trail to the library. As a matter of fact, when they found her body... They found her paperwork, and she'd written a letter to a friend, an old boyfriend who was in the military. She said, yeah, I walked down to the library. I followed the river just to look at some ducks, and I better get back now. (laughs) And she was murdered on the way home. She didn't survive the way back. The next morning, a guy that worked in the area was going down to the river to check it out because he thought he might go fishing after his shift, and he found her body naked and, and dead. So he went and called the police, and that's where it all started.
0: The killer had dragged her into some bushes along the banks of the river, raped her, and strangled her with her own shoelaces. Renton police had no idea who might have done it. A year and a half later, another murder just a few miles away. 17-year-old Joanne Zuloff had gone out for a walk before dinner, taking advantage of a warm summer evening in 1970.
1: Joanne Zuloff, 17 years old, was at her house in the east hill of Renton, it was a Saturday, and it was a nice day, and her mom was making dinner. She goes, I'm going to go for a walk, I'll be back in about a half hour. And she walked out the door and didn't return. And so, uh, you know, her parents obviously at first didn't think much. She must have went over to her friend's house, and they're calling around her, and they can't find her. When it's getting to be 10, 11 o'clock at night, you know, then they're really concerned. And they called the sheriff's office, and the dispatcher just said, okay, well, give us a call back if she's not there in the morning, thinking she might be a runaway or something, right? And so they wait all night long. And of course, you can imagine they didn't sleep all night. Their daughter's missing. And, and then it wasn't until the next afternoon they called again and a very good patrol officer came out, O'Brien was his name, heard what was going on and goes, no, 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 I don't like this. And he called his sergeant. So we need to get people out here for an active search.
0: Joanne's body was found in a heavily wooded area. She also had been stripped naked. Even her watch was missing. She'd been hit in the back of the head with something heavy, something like a rock, but an autopsy would later determine that she died from strangulation. Because it happened just outside the city limits, the case was handled the King County Sheriff's Department, and no connection was made at the time to the murder of Carol Erickson.
2: Yeah, this is really interesting here, that even though this is a small town of Renton in the late 60s, early 70s, uh, what they're dealing with, the murder and sexual assault, is something being felt across the country. There was a huge spike in sexual assault and homicides in the 70s. And in response to this wave of violent crime in 1972 the FBI started its now famous behavioral science unit. You know, you, I'm sure you know all, oh, yeah. all about that. And for fans of the show Mindhunter, you'll be reminded of how very... Do you watch Mindhunter? Oh, I love that show. It's I, so good. Yeah. So so basically, you know, the law enforcement is very skeptical um, of using behavioral science to catch criminals, which, and put together profiles, which today would just seem... Obvious. Uh, I, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So now it's called the behavioral analysis unit and we can see how much that unit's work in taking data on serial killers and predators to provide training, you know, the motives, the planning and preparation detail of the crimes, disposal of evidence really could have helped and
0: looking for connections in different crimes. That's another thing that they they're really good at in that unit that they
2: didn't have at the time. Yeah, so prior to this work, criminal profiling had never been used during an active investigation instead it was often a last resort resort in cold cases but it's just when we look up think about or at least when i do like dna and you know of course now that's critical to law enforcement now but also equally i think the profiling and taking databases and kind of looking what do we have that connects this and, th- and coming up with other ideas of how who are we looking for you know It's really changed law enforcement over the last 50 years.
0: It has. And so at this time, both of these murder cases, Joanne Zuloff and Carol Erickson, still open. No suspects, no real leads. And then on April 20th, 1971, two little boys go missing. Scott Andrews and Bradley Lyons. They were just six years old. They were neighbors. They were great friends. Even their little brothers were playmates.
1: They went outside and were playing outside the house. And the moms both said, yeah, they were out there. And then one of them came in and said, got cookies for everybody, went back out, and then came in again. And then one of the mothers is, is sitting in her kitchen in the afternoon. She looks out the window and just sees the little little brothers, and she doesn't see the other boys. And she sticks her head and goes, hey, where'd your brother go? Oh, they went in the woods over there, which is they always played in these woods, right?
0: Yeah, they always played in these woods. I mean, this was back in the day, right, where you didn't come mm-hmm. home until the streetlights came on, if yeah. then. Yeah, exactly. Uh,
2: and 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 six-year-olds, though. It just seems so vulnerable now. I have a six-year-old. And it's like, imagine like, okay, go ahead and go in those woods. You know, um, it's just... It's a different time.
0: And the boys, they didn't return a short time later. So one of the moms called police they didn't live far from the Cedar River either. So at first, the search for the boys centered around that body of water. Investigators thought that during their exploring of the, of the woods, they might have fallen into the water. But after two days of an intense search, the boys' bodies were found.
1: At one point, a guy who was a volunteer firefighter is walking down a trail. And as he's going, he sees something light in the, in the brush. He looks over and he sees blonde hair. So he walks over, and then he sees that these two. you can see another boy, and they're they're covered with brush and everything. And he stopped and called to get somebody down here. And later, they came down. they've been covered with tree boughs and leaves. And they were both nude also. And both one had been strangled to death and the other had been stabbed to death.
0: A third gruesome crime scene, two little boys stolen from their families. But there was nothing that screamed serial killer. And other than being in the same area as the other two murders, there didn't really
2: seem to be anything linking them together. Let me ask a quick question, Kim. Do you think now that you've put this together with the the two women, both of them strangled, right? Mm-hmm. Both of them sexually well, one assaulted. One had been strangled. One had been stabbed. Okay. One had been strangled. One had been stabbed. Okay. And then the the boys were both strangled. Well, wait. Stabbed. One had been. St- both stabbed. Yeah, basically all of the victims
0: were were stabbed and or strangled. Do you think that that it was that you would put it together no. a profile? No. I mean, you've got, you know, young women, 17, mm-hmm. 19 years old, and then you've got two little boys who are 6. You've got one case or two cases rather where there's people, you know, killed individually and then you've got a case where two people were killed together. At the time, I can understand why they wouldn't have put these cases together.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think that um, when we talked to Cloyd, I was like, these seem so different. Yeah. They seem the same, but then also, I mean, similarities, but so different because generally you don't have, you know, a criminal who hunts little boys hunting you know, teenage girls, it seems like in the profiling things that I've seen. So I could see why they would not put it together. But then on the other hand, it's such a small town at the time. Like these are like the biggest things going on in that four year period. Oh, ever. yeah. And and Joanne Zuloff and Carol Erickson.
0: Those cases were pretty similar. So I feel like that maybe they should have picked up on. But yeah. at the same time, they were in different jurisdictions. Yeah. And they didn't have you know, email to just say, hey, right. Databases you guys got like anything that? over yeah. there happening like what we got over here? Like, it just, we didn't have that technology back in the day.
2: But we did have that small town talk. I'm just surprised that they didn't be like, oh, my gosh, did you hear about what happened to so-and-so? Did you hear about what? Anyway, just- Well, to- who knows? Maybe the gossip was going, but it just didn't reach the investigators. Yeah,
0: that's always a possibility. Now we've got to rewind just a quick minute here because the day that the boys went missing, something strange happened at the local hospital.
1: A guy walks into the emergency room and he's odd. He just sits in the chair. He doesn't approach the person there to be admitted. Finally, Sam comes up to him and he this girl starts talking to him, a 19-year-old girl that works at admitting there. Can we help you with something? And he was just odd. He wouldn't tell her anything. He she wouldn't got the triage nurse or whoever it was. And said, There's a weird guy out here. And, but eventually he goes and speaks to the uh, doctor in, uh, working in the ER and says, I just have this feeling I want to hurt children. And and says, you know, I, I just think I, I, I could hurt children. And so the doctor, you know, give him a shot of Thorazine, put him in the room. You know, that's what they did. And then he referred him to the psych resident there and moved on to the next case.
0: He didn't really think much of it for a few days, but then the doctor's wife sees a story about the missing boys on the news and she mentions it to her husband. And he realizes He may have treated the
2: kidnapper. One plus one equals two.
0: But he wants to talk to his lawyer before going to police because, you know, he's not sure about doctor-patient confidentiality, if that might affect things like his license to practice. Yeah. Um, His lawyer tells him that there is an exception for abused children. So the doctor goes ahead and calls investigators.
1: When they get the call, two detectives that eventually respond, one Renton and one King County Sheriff's detective, are standing over the boys' bodies. And they respond from the scene to the hospital. And they start talking to him. Well, the first thing they did, the first night, they start asking him about the case. And he goes, oh, I can't imagine I did that. And he doesn't know anything, doesn't know much about it. And so they arranged to have him sent to Harborview in Seattle downtown, which is a bigger psych area. The next day, they go pick him up again. And now he wants to confess to the murders. And he starts giving them specific details of, you know, covering the boys and taking the clothes off and doing all this kind of stuff. And they're thinking, oh, this is weird, you know.
0: Investigators still haven't linked the murders of Scott and Bradley with the murders of Carol and Joanne, but they at least feel like they're making progress in yeah. this case. And they decide to take the confessed killer back to the scene of the crime to see if he can give them any more details about the attack, if it might jog his memory or if he can show them something that was left out there.
1: And they're walking him through the woods, show us where it is. And he's like going, it's up here. And he walks up and he's, instead of taking the trail, he just walks through brush. And they go, don't you want to take the trail? He goes, I make my own trails. And he can't find the exact spot. He goes, it's around here somewhere. And, and I remember this. I remember that.
0: So he didn't. they didn't really get a whole lot out of him on that trip back to the woods, but... There was a group of explorer scouts who were working with investigators. They'd been doing grid searches of the area going inch by inch looking for evidence, and one of them finds a knife. It matches the size and shape of the wounds on the two boys, so they decide they're going to send it to the crime lab to be analyzed by a forensic expert.
1: And he starts looking at the knife, and it's it's got like an electrical tape around the handle. And so he's trying to get fingerprints, and he starts unwinding the electrical tape to see if he can get fingerprints from the lower levels, when he gets it all the way off, he sees there's a name etched in the handle. (laughs) In the business, we call that a clue.
2: Ooh, is that what that is? You know what? I thought that was so funny. I mean, Cloyd is hilarious. And, you know, it is quite a clue. And what's interesting here, too, is that this guy is, did he at this point admit that he was the one that killed the boys? Yeah, he was
0: confessing to murdering the two boys he was saying, I can't really remember doing it. It was almost like a dream, like I saw myself do it, but I killed them. So this man, John Chance, was making this confession. Meantime, there was another name that popped up. That knife that they found took it back to the crime lab. It had the same blood type as that of six-year-old Scott Andrews. Of course, at the time, they didn't have DNA, but they had blood typing. And so this knife was definitely used in the crime. And it had the name Tom Evanson etched onto the handle. So it didn't take them too long to track down the original owner of the knife. But, of course, it can't be that easy.
1: He comes in. He starts. Talking, oh, yeah, I remember that knife. I bought, he said, like, I bought it at Wigwam for about $1. fifty or something. He goes, yeah, yeah. And I, yeah, I scratched my name in it. And that's right. And he goes, what happened to it? Well, I, I sold it to my friend so-and-so. And, okay. And they go, do you know where he lives? Well, I know he still doesn't have it because he gave it to another kid that I know and his 14-year-old kid. And so they go, uh, go to night Middle School, they get him out of class, <laughs> and they're saying, uh, well, what do you know about that? Is this knife? Not- oh, yeah, I had that knife. He goes, yeah, I had it. And I was with a friend of mine who lives in the same trailer park, and we were in his truck, and I left it in his truck. And then I called him later and said, hey, what happened to that knife? I want it back. And then he told me, oh, my dad found it in the truck, and I- he put it in his room. I can't go in his room and get it. And he goes, who is your friend? Gary Grant.
0: So basically, it was like this game of telephone with this knife. It was passed from hand to hand to hand. And the last person known to have it, Gary Grant, was a little more than a kid himself. He was just 20 years old, still living with his dad, who was working as a security guard. And when investigators got to their home to ask about the knife, Gary wasn't there. But they really didn't want to talk with him anyways. At first, they started to interview his father. They thought he just looked more obvious as a suspect. In the middle of it, Gary drives up. One of the investigators goes over to his car to talk with him, not so much to interview him, but more just to kind of keep him busy so the other cop could keep talking with his father. Mm -hmm. But as they're talking, the investigator notices something about Gary's shoes. The tread on the bottom seems to look like the plaster cast that they were able to get from a shoe print left near the boys' bodies. Now, one thing about this, a shoe print is not definitive evidence, right? I mean, Nike makes how many thousands of pairs of like Air Jordans, right? Mm -hmm. Shoe prints are not definitive. Plus, I know my daughters borrow my shoes, (laughs) <laughs> yeah.
2: But so, I mean, it's it's something and specifically, uh, you know, in the O.J. Simpson case, for example, I mean, he wore a size 12, you know, Bruno Mars or whatever that. Name yeah, brand highly was. unlikely, highly yeah. unlikely that the average person would have access to that type of shoe. So but I'm, you also have to remember, they already have a suspect in I, custody. I know, and I'm thinking I'm so glad that they didn't just get tunnel vision. This is true. Yeah. You know, because it sounds like, you you know, in a lot of investigations, they do get tunnel vision. Like, we got somebody. We're not even going to look at this other stuff, you know, which is great. So two detectives, Wally Hume
0: and Jim Phelan, ask Gary if he'll come back to the station. And he agrees. They ask him if he'll take a polygraph test. And he agrees to that, too.
1: And a polygraph, you have what's called a pre-interview, right? Just ask questions and see what the reaction is. A good polygraph operator. I don't care about the machine, right? It's your interrogation skills. And Dewey, he starts talking to Gary, and Gary starts crying. They hadn't even hooked him up to the machine yet. (laughs) (laughs) And then a few minutes later, so Wally Hume and Jim Phelan are sitting in the waiting room outside, and Dewey goes out there and says, he just confessed to me to killing those
2: two
0: boys. Dewey Gillespie is that amazing polygraph examiner. And according to Cloyd, he's a little bit of a legend at the Seattle Police Department. Well, it
2: sounds like he deservedly so if he got the kid to confess, you know, before he was even hooked up to the machine.
0: Right. And not just that, but uh, he, he could just tell when somebody had something to get off their chest. Mm-hmm. And in this case, he felt like Gary Grant had a little more to say.
1: Gillespie comes out and says, let me talk to him again. He goes, okay. So they put her back in the room, and he closes the door, and he goes, I'm thinking about a girl. And Grant goes, did she have long, dark hair? Was she stabbed? <laughs> and then he starts describing killing Carol Erickson. He confesses. He says he saw her, and he came up behind her and just one solid stab wound to the back. And then mid-sentence, he starts talking about she had short, reddish bob haircut. And he starts talking about Joanne Zuloff on his own.
0: We really don't know how Dewey Gillespie, the forensic examiner, knew to ask him or to mm-hmm. try to get him to give more confessions because, again, they hadn't
2: connected these three cases yet. Well, Dewey had, obviously, because he said, I'm, I'm thinking of a woman or thinking of a girl. So he obviously had somehow connected something that, you know, hadn't been connected by others. So.
0: Or maybe it was a one of those kind of shot in the dark. Like, I know this was this other unsolved murder case in the area, like— Let's just give it a shot and see what he says. Yeah. It could have been just dumb luck, partly.
2: Yeah. Well, he obviously saw something in the kid. I wish that we knew what he was. Do we know what he was saying? Why he was feeling guilty? Why he... Nope. Just the magic
0: of Dewey Gillespie, apparently. okay. So they've got this other confessed killer in jail for the murders of Scott and Bradley. And Cloyd says at the time, investigators were not as careful as they are today about what they say to the media. And so clearly one of these guys must have gotten his information from news reports about the killings.
1: I've had people trying to do false confessions to me. Fortunately, I've recognized it as BS right from the beginning. When they tell you that little tidbit that nobody knows but the killer, then you know you got the right person. And that's happened to me over and over and over again.
0: But in this case, there was no tidbit of information that was held back. So investigators had to figure out another way to identify the real killer. And they had a few things that helped them out with that. First of all, that plaster cast that matched the shoes of Gary Jean Grant. Not definitive evidence, but that definitely helped. And then there was the knife. That was linked to Gary, but he didn't have like a really direct connection with it. It was like a friend of a friend of a friend's knife. So still not super, you know, hard evidence against him. But then there was the evidence that the other man who confessed, his name was John Chance, and he was an Army veteran. He also had documented mental health issues, and it turned out he was a paranoid schizophrenic. Not long after he confessed to the boys' murders, he also admitted that he was the son of the planet Saturn and that he met Jesus Christ once in the town of Tillicum.
2: You know, it's so sad that this guy, John Chance, would have probably been put away. Well, he was
0: in jail for some time after they had booked him for the murders, but before he had a trial. But
2: if they would have not caught you know, triple G. I mean, there's I'm like 100 percent certain that they would have been like, yeah, he looks good for this. Well, and at the
0: time, if you confessed to the killings and you didn't have a good attorney, case closed. Yeah, that was it. So they withdrew the charges against John Chance, though, in the murder of these two little boys. He's released. Gary Jean Grant is arrested and charged with the murders of Bradley Lyons and Scott Andrews. But they still didn't have really any hard evidence to connect him with the murders of Carol Erickson and Joanne Zuloff, just, you know, his story. But as we found out with, you know, John Chance, a confession doesn't always mean
2: that you're the killer. Well, especially when they leak everything to the press and right. they know every single detail about the case.
0: So while Gary was a little bit of an oddball, he wasn't a total loner. So investigators decided they needed to start talking with his friends.
1: He would have arguments or fights with friends or girlfriends right around the time this stuff happened. Like, one of his really good friends was this guy, Frank. Frank was, like, the cool guy. Everybody liked Frank. And Gary kind of glommed on to him. And Frank was nice to Gary, right? But Frank told the detectives about a time, the first time he ever yelled at Gary. It was, like, the night before he killed those little boys. And so he had this girl he really liked. And he he had a girlfriend for a while. And, you know, he was at a party with Frank. They were all together. He hung up with a big group of people. But everybody said he was an oddball, right? And he gave her a watch. And she always said, You say you do all this stuff, but you never get paid for it. Well, they gave her the watch to see I do get paid for what I do. What well, was Joanne Zuloff's watch that they gave her?
0: That watch would turn out to be a key piece of evidence in his trial. On September 30th, 1971, Gary Jean Grant was found guilty of all four murders and sentenced to four life sentences. Despite several appeals, he still today is an inmate at the Monroe Correctional Complex. As for why he committed these murders, Cloyd says we may never know.
1: Continually, when he when he talked about the crime, he would say, "I don't remember doing this. I don't remember doing this." And he goes, "I must have though. I must have done it." And what he went through about four psychiatric evaluations. And when he told one of the things he told one of the psychiatrists was, "When I close my eyes, I can see these things happening as if it were a movie camera."
0: While it wasn't obvious at the time, looking back, Cloyd says it's easy to see now that. There was something that linked these murders together. It wasn't anything about the victims. It was all about the scene of the crime.
1: They were all in the woods. Every one of them was in the woods. Second of all, they were assaulted at one place and drugged to another place. All of them. Undressed, drugged off of main trail, off to the side, in a wooded area. That's what tied them together. It was, it was a crime of opportunity. He wasn't looking for a particular type of victim. He's, he's just looking for whoever comes along. Because he would just roam the woods until he came across somebody.
2: Just looking for somebody to kill. We're not going to find the answers, even if an, a profiler were here to talk about it. Like, we just don't know. I mean, there's there's just not enough information about Gary Jean Grant, which is an interesting thought in and of itself. Why do some cases take off and, you know, Ted Bundy, Green River Killer, and yet Ger- Gary Jean Grant, I, I mean, if you walked around Renton, I don't think that anybody... You know, maybe one out of 10 people would be like, oh, yeah, Gary Jean Grant. Yeah, and that's
0: why Cloyd decided to write a book on this case. It's called Seattle's Forgotten Serial Killer because – he was sort of forgotten. I mean really not even forgotten. He wasn't even really known in the first place. <laughs> I know that's what I'm saying. Maybe like, that's kind of justice though. If you think about a lot of serial killers, they want definitely. that publicity and that yeah. Uh, attention. Yeah. So maybe it's a good thing that Triple G, as I like to call him, no, I think isn't getting
2: a, that. I think it's a very good thing, but I think it makes, you know, we always ask the question nature versus nurture, what why do people do the things that they do? And it's like with this guy, we're we're never we're never going to know. Well, we can read Cloyd's book, The Pimp Detective's book.
0: <laughs> Maybe we can get a little more insight. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't understand also the connection between the you know young women and the little boys because I can see the sexual nature of the murders for mm-hmm. Joanne and Carol. But when it comes to the little boys, they're, they're different, right? Well, I mean, it's a complete
2: disconnect like what we were talking about earlier. But I think Cloyd, I mean, I'm going to have to go back to Cloyd because he said, you know, he was... A crime of opportunity. He would roam the woods looking, you know, just waiting for that vulnerable person, less about the victim, more about whatever rampage he wanted to go on against that that person. Or and it persons. could be that
0: we might have had more insight if they had known what questions to ask mm-hmm. at the time. I mean, thinking again, like that Mindhunter show, yeah. <laughs> they just didn't ask those
2: kind of probing psychological questions that they do now. Well, and I think like we can look at the fact that they thought it was the dad. Right, they thought it, they, you know they're not thinking this is going to be a twenty-year-old kid that's going to be capable of doing yeah, this because
0: his first murder would have been committed when he was seventeen because these murders happened over a three-year period. Yeah. So the first murder, he was just seventeen years old, and at the time, investigators didn't see teenagers as potential serial killers or killers well, at all. And
2: I think even now we still don't. I think it's hard for people to wrap their heads around the fact that teenage kids, especially ones who are seemingly normal are capable of the this kind of gruesome carnage. And I think that maybe that's another reason with this uh, with Gary Jean Grant is that he doesn't fit the stereotype, the bucket. Yeah, he's not a loner. Yeah. I mean he's odd, but lots of people are odd, you know? And he also doesn't kill one particular, you know, style type. They're similar. Right. The only thing is the woods. And I think it's funny, um, you mentioned the email
0: that Cloyd got yeah, when he was, published this book the day amazing. it came out. Sh- yeah. Share a little bit about that. Yeah,
2: so it was really this really long, long email that he got from a woman who had basically uh, been a schoolmate of Gary Jean Grant and the friend Frank. Um, they were all friends, and she had just on a whim— Googled whatever happened. Did anybody write a book about Gary Jean Grant and these murders that happened? Because obviously she grew up in that time period and was very familiar with the case. And all of a sudden, oh, Cloyd, the pimp detective, Seattle's forgotten serial killer, you know, Gary Jean Grant came up. And so she sent him this long email basically saying that, hey, I actually went on a ski trip. With with Gary Jean Grant and Frank, we all went on a... They went to. They were all students at Renton Technical College and basically she just felt like Gary Jean Grant was just kind of a weirdo and he really looked toward Frank for his attention that day and she had to sit next to him on a ride up to Crystal Mountain and they were taking some international students to see snow for the first time and she just said that he just gave her a really weird feeling the entire day. Now, of course, we can all say that There's people that we meet in life that are like, yeah, they just made me feel weird and they're not serial killers. But in this particular case, you know, he actually was a serial killer. So he it was kind of fortuitous that she was looking up the book and here it is. So And Cloyd
0: was saying uh, he's talked to so many people who have had kind of coincidental run ins with people they would later find out were killers. And so he said, you know, most of us probably have come across a killer or a serial killer in our lives. And we just don't know it. Like they might have been sitting next to us at the diner or pulled up next to us at the gas station. And, you know, we could have been their next victim, but we
2: never would know that because it's not like they wear I'm a big sign that says serial yeah. killer. Yeah. I mean, they walk <laughs> amongst us. You know, we don't we don't know who they are. I mean, I don't know. Since we've been doing the podcast, I've definitely gotten I find myself being way more paranoid and thinking about it way more than I than I ever did before. I mean, what about you? I know you're going to be like, no, nope, but I don't ever think about anything. I'm sorry. I just, you know, <laughs> somebody's going to kill me. They're going to
0: kill me. And there's probably not a whole lot I can do about it. So, you know, I got to leave it up to yeah, fate. fate. Yeah, all right. I, can't, I got too many other things to stress about, <laughs> you know, worrying yeah. about all the, you know, unnamed, un known serial killers out there just Mm -hmm. isn't on the top of my list.
2: Well, just the the serial, the predators. I think that's more, I'm not thinking about serial killers per se, but just like, I'm just thinking more with my kids. Like yeah. I, uh, I was way more like I let my kids, you know, walk home and things like that. And I've been criticized for like can you free range parents. You, yeah, can you believe that you're? You know, I actually had a mom try to school me about it. And now it's like I, I'm fighting that that urge to. You know, when I think about that six year old boy, right. boys, like I, I want to retain that sense of freedom, but it is. You know, it is scary.
0: Well, I don't know if it will make you feel any better. But as a matter of fact, just this morning, I was listening to this analysis by the BBC about why people love true crime and, and what it what is it that it draws us to it. Mm-hmm. And um, one thing they were saying is there's sort of this misconception that killers, you know, serial killers are people you don't know who are going to come get you. They're the boogeyman, as Cloyd put it. Mm-hmm. But they said, actually, most violent crimes happen between people who already know each other.
2: Yeah, no, You are I knew a that. million yes. times more likely yeah, to your be spouse?
0: hurt or killed. Yeah. Well, spouse, it could be um, a child, it could be a brother or sister, somebody that you already know, a co-worker, mm-hmm. much more likely than just some boogeyman who jumps out of the woods.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's. I think it's just obviously control. You know, we want to try to control it all and we want to try to control what's happening and we can't and we just have to kind of like let go of the reins but it's tough but next week I have a pretty interesting story for us to dive into so I know I don't know if you've been tracking this I'm sure you probably have but recently a woman was in the news who had been offering to give free newborn photos to build her portfolio. Little did they know that she was planning to steal one of their babies.
0: That is coming up next time. I'm Kim, she's Carolyn, and this is Scene of the Crime.